Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Tim. And this is Get On Board, a podcast about games worth playing. Join us every week for great analysis on board games, pick fives, reviews, and all sorts of other entertaining board game talk. Hi, I'm Tim. I'm Andrew. And this is Get On Board, a podcast about games worth playing. So, let's begin right with that. What games have you found worth playing last week? Or you thought worth playing? Oh, yeah. Well, fortunately, all the games for me this week are worth playing. Well, good. So, I've been checking out a cool little auction bidding game called Masyoshka. And have also been... Digging into some sweet sci-fi goodness. Matryoshka, you said that so Russian style. It's almost as if you lived there for a while or something. Right, yeah. Yeah. Crazy stuff, crazy stuff. Well, for those maybe who don't know, Matryoshka is the, I think in English most people say Matryoshka dolls. Um, Yeah. And... uh, They're, of course, the Russian nesting dolls. And this is really, I I did, are you talking about the play that we did? Yes, and then I played it twice more with another group. Oh, man, you're active. So, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you've played that a number of times now. Yeah, just I've only played it that once, but I really like this game. It's interesting. I I was so skeptical of it. I always, Mm -hmm. I don't know, filler games often just don't have very satisfying mechanics. Yeah. But this little game, this little nesting doll game, you, you kind of sort of lay out, a mandatory set of cards that may or may not be the thing that you're going for. And then you kind of have this interesting little trading phase with each player where you put a card face up on the table and they trade a card face down and you choose which player you want to trade with. And um, they might give you something that you think you're going for, that they think you're going for in exchange for something that you put out that they need. So it's really sort of an interesting there's some bluffing in it. There's yeah. reading other players. There's the mandatory trading. You have to trade on your turn. And when it's not your turn, you have to offer a card in trade. And you'll find yourself wishing very often that you could just hang on to every card in your hand. Uh, we played one game where we were all trading around the same card. Huh. And we were all trading around the same junk offers for the card. And so just the same trash was just circulating until actually the player who won said, wait a minute, I can cash in on this. And he picked up all of the cards and built a big set with it. Yeah. So, yeah, that was an interesting one. It's a lot and of game for your money. We need to review yeah. that one soon. Yeah, for we need sure. To review that one soon. For sure. And what what you said thing about the sci-fi realm? You played something. What yes. did you play? Okay, so so dear listener, picture this. Andrew got the itch to play a deck builder. And, and for Andrew convinced Andrew. Tim to play a deck builder or, or convinced him to hunt for this game in his shelf o games and we broke out core worlds. So yeah, the surprise was one that you actually wanted to play a deck builder. Yes. And the second well, surprise was there was a deck builder in my collection that I still hadn't played. So <laughs> I guess that's not too much of a surprise considering how much is in my collection. But yeah, core worlds. Yeah. It's one of those games that it gets a lot of critical acclaim. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you hear reviewers talk about it, mm-hmm. and, and, and it was with a little bit of reverence in their voice. Oh, that's yeah. a good game, and and yeah. So, I guess I've sort of taken over. I have commandeered your recent play <laughs> because it was my recent play too. Yeah, we've been playing these so, together. Core yeah. Worlds has a lot of what I'm calling machinations. You have to think very hard and do simple addition, and it's not. 
frustrating. It doesn't detract from the game, but that's definitely there. You're thinking, okay, so the main the main interesting thing about Core Worlds is you basically purchase a card twice. So you purchase it to recruit it into your deck, but then when it comes up, unlike a normal deck builder where you just play everything in your hand, in Core Worlds, you actually have to pay for that card a second time to actually deploy it into battle. So you pay a separate, different cost. Well, you don't deploy it into battle at that point. You deploy it sort of into an, a waiting army. Yes, yeah, so like a war zone, yeah. And then, then for free, you can use them from right. that. So it's sort of this weird... You build these temporary tableaus that then you can mm-hmm. sort of chunk up by discarding those cards again. Right. Because ultimately you're trying to buy planets and invade planets. I didn't think that I would like that, actually. I, I, when I first read that in the rulebook, I thought, man, i got to pay for this card twice? you yeah. got to be kidding me. But it works. I mean, the way they, the way they designed yeah. it really, really works. And what was really interesting, too, is you even had cards where just purchasing them, just having them in your deck, of course, would net you points. But then if you managed to deploy them, even though they were super expensive, they would net you additional points on top of that. So yeah, a very pleasing kind of layer to this game that was just really interesting. I enjoyed the way I had to think about managing these resources, these ships and men to go invade planets. It it felt thematic, I'll tell you that. And that's really odd for me to say about a deck builder. This is a Tim game by all <laughs> by all appearances. This looks to be a game that Tim would love and I would just kind of shrug my shoulders at. I really enjoyed this one. And the the nice little sci-fi artwork doesn't hurt it. I love me a good sci-fi game. Yeah. And even though it's thematic for a deck builder, it's not dripping with theme. But the sci-fi helps, and I enjoyed it. I had fun. And what I've been telling Andrew, and for our listeners, uh, be ready because there is something interesting coming, I think. Mm-hmm. We're going to have kind of a look at a core game and some, uh, and some of its descendants. I said core game, um, not to be confused with the core worlds, because <laughs> what I'm talking about is I really believe that core worlds and our recently reviewed Eminent Domain, Mm -hmm. and there are probably several other games that have sort of descended from Race for the Galaxy. Yeah. Yeah, it's the 600-pound iconography in the room. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, one of the drawbacks, not to reveal too much about an upcoming review, but Mm. we do want to... uh, We had never... I played Race for the Galaxy a couple of times, did not enjoy the experience... But I was expecting something different. Right. And having not played the game now in, in about three years and mm-hmm. coming back to it even just today before this uh, podcast, Andrew, this is your first play of it, right? Yep. Absolute first it play. It was really interesting. It coming, was really good. Coming back to it from having played, I, I, I do feel like kind of like one of those weird movies where you know, you see the the picture of somebody's grandfather, and it looks just <laughs> like them. You know, yeah. just I, I do. It feels really odd to know Eminent Domain so well, and to know and have to have played Core Worlds, huh, yeah. and, and like you're playing the you know you're playing the granddaddy game. And I'm gonna give it a few more plays, but it I have to admit, uh, race has more merit. Hmm. Then I, I feel like race has more merit at this point well, yeah. than I initially gave it credit for. Well, yeah, for. you can never write off a classic like that. I mean, clearly so many people have played it because there's something there, even if it's not for everyone. But, you know, there's something there worth exploring. Yeah. I want to explore it more before I say anything about it. I enjoyed it, but I don't feel like I'm able to say much at this point because I feel like there's a lot of depth there that I didn't tap. I mean, I basically just conquered a bunch of military planets, and that's all I did. Mm-hmm. So... I've scratched the surface of one of the rolls, basically. Yeah. 
but be prepared because that's that subject has surfaced now yeah uh several times and and we played race today just because of this tie-in with eminent and core worlds and yep. and we we've got to compare the three yeah we have to really compare the three i'm still loving me this core worlds though and to tie it back to isaac asimov and the foundation novels which i talked about a couple episodes ago the core worlds are these really cool... There's this stepped progression in the game, which I've never seen in, yep. in a deck builder before, where your market changes as you kind of progress through the galaxy. And the story behind that is you're kind of these barbarian kingdoms at the fringes of the galaxy. And as you build your technology, you progress deeper and deeper until you're finally attacking the core worlds and you're struggling for actual domination of the entire galaxy. And what that means in mechanics terms is that your deck, your market that's available to you to purchase changes throughout the game and it can be tuned a little bit better than just random card draw yeah because your phase one planets and technologies are going to be really different than your phase you know five or six when you're in the core worlds and you're buying these huge planets that cost tons of men to invade and you're just picturing these huge battles with really established ancient planets and so there's this really pleasing progression because you move just gradually through the game and as you build up steam your challenges get more difficult and you just oh it's a really cool and, snowball and, and what he means by that is that there literally is like there there, there is a card out there for every two phases of the yeah. game so there are five cards because there yep. are 10 phases 10 turns. The, 10 turns and that's the timer to the game and then every every two turns basically the deck that you were just playing the open market with Changes. changes yep and I that's just it. so cool what a great idea because yeah. you don't get your you don't get the market choked with a bunch of junk that's irrelevant to where you're at yeah in the pacing of the game what a solid idea i wish more games yeah would do that kind of thing totally, totally. and you would think that that would really affect setup and tear down but the way they did it i think makes it really mm -hmm. easy was, yeah. um so yeah this is that's that's going to be a really interesting one and, and we've already had interesting conversations of you know, pertaining to does this fire anything else right. for us? And we're, mm, uh, so. I think it just opens up an interesting little niche in my brain that I didn't know existed. Right, right. I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. Well, Tim, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Yeah. Because we are not going to go to our review right away. I want to go to our discussion instead. Because I my was question, just thinking about this. My question you, to mm -hmm. you is, how in the world did it take us so long to discover these two great games within this cavernous collection of yours? Yes, our review topic deals our with the answer. Discussion sorry, topic. discussion topic. Sorry, our discussion topic deals with the this question and the answer to this question, which is game collecting and gaming. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Andrew and I both have very different approaches to game collecting and um, it affects our gaming. It affects yeah. it affects how we play, it affects what we play. So yes, how is it that that we had Core World sitting on the shelf and um, had never played it? Well, it's because I have enormous shelves full of games. Not even just shelves full of games, but shelves double layered with games there's a back layer these shelves are so deep they can actually hold two rows of game boxes so actually when we wanted to play race for the galaxy today we had to go digging right. we had to go on an archaeological expedition in the second layer and try to find the game box if you can imagine i have one set of the the famed uh, ikea Kallax shelves sitting in my rec room with about 75 games on it a few yeah. more games on top of a, a nearby bookshelf and on the bottom, I'm starting. I 
told myself I was going to use that shelf for books, but oh well. And a whole <laughs> bunch of uh, Gollum Arcana miniatures. I love the miniatures, miniatures a lot more than the game. Uh, displayed out there. But then I have this back closet with these the custom-made shelves that really mm. can hold kind of games sort of in a standard square box about two rows deep. It took us forever tonight to find Race for the Galaxy. Yep. I yep. couldn't remember what row it was in. Tons of games in shrink. Uh, tons of games unplayed. Yep. And collecting games is part of the thrill of the gaming hobby to me. Yeah. And let me say before we get into this, we're not judging people who keep a ton of games. Obviously, you are one of those people. And I'm not saying that because I have fewer games, I'm a better gamer or I prioritize gaming over collecting or anything like that. I'm just saying there's different approaches here, and I think it's cool to unpack them. Yeah, and I, I think everybody kind of... There's like a justification factor here that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to throw out, but I think it's valid. Mm-hmm. Like, I have friends who easily drop what I've spent in a, a two years of gaming on season tickets to... Uh, pro sports, uh, right, right. Uh, the teams, Royals, right. Even though they're terrible this year. <laughs> well, I think you can get season tickets this year for fifty dollars, can't you? I think they're paying year? us this year, actually. So it's it's pretty <laughs> ow, bad. Ow, no, we we love your Royals. Come on back. Yep. So yeah, you know that is, I think, in in some ways, justifiable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, there are, there are those of us who just get a thrill out of, hey, we find a really cool cool deal on a game. It's a game we've looked at, has kind of an interesting mechanic. We want to give it a shot. We buy it. We pull it under our collection. Now, at some point, does that kind of go into hoarding? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. What constitutes a hoarder? A hoarder is somebody who has approximately, there's a, there is a formula for this. The number of games you have in your collection, if you're a collector like me, is X. And a hoarder is somebody who has X plus 50. <laughs> That's a little joke for you. <laughs> so, in other words, none of us really like to consider ourselves to be hoarders. But, um, and I'm, I'm probably am reaching the point where I'm realizing, you know, I do have too many games in my collection. And you um, are starting to think about selling on some of the ones that have sat and shrink for two years. Right. And the the truth is that there are games I know that I need to get rid of because Mm -hmm. they've been fired by other games or I just wasn't that thrilled about them. How many games are there that you have tried that you think you could sell with a clear conscience? Yeah, see, this it it does have, uh, you know, I mentioned hoarder, but I do kind of have this hoarder mentality, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is kind of this thought of, man, what if if I gather a group and this just happens to be that Mm -hmm. perfect game for them? But, I mean... Offhand, I could probably think of about twenty that I could just let go of right now, yeah. and and and, and those are ones with. that you've played, ones that I've played. Right, so you're not missing out any chances for the game, basically. Right, you've evaluated it, and it's just still here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's 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 my approach uh, to gaming is is just mm-hmm. that collecting is part of the fun of the hobby. And that I have enjoyed building up to this collection. Andrew, why don't you give us a summary, a bit of a summary of your approach? Yeah, so I've got a more lightweight approach. Uh, Less money, fewer games, uh, less space, smaller house, just all of those things in general. And I guess you could say that my approach is more aggressive. So I have about 100, 110 games that I have marked as previously owned. So those are games that have cycled out of my collection. And I have about, I think right now I have just about 70 games that I actually own, and probably five or six of those that I'm actively trying to get rid of. Wait, let's do the math. How many games you cycled out? 110. 110. 70. 70 is what I have. Okay. 
And then I'm trying to get rid of like five or six of those probably. Okay. So what what are kind of the merits? Okay. We, we talk a little so, bit about some of the merits. And, and let's mention here too that this also includes a ton of solo games. I probably have almost a dozen solo games at this point that all are in one box and really only get played by me. So my actual collection fits on a pretty small shelf by, by BGG standards. So some of the merits of this are I get to try new games, mm-hmm. not less frequently than you do, and I just you know know when either the game that I've tried is not good enough and I can sell it on, or when the game that I've tried has replaced something in my collection and I can sell on what got replaced. Right. So I'm more aggressive about firing a game. So, for example... I have both modern art and raw in my collection, mm-hmm. and I enjoy modern both auction art. Games. They're both auction yeah. games. I I actually like a lot of auction games, so I have several different auction games, and I enjoy modern art. But you know what? My group has not taken to it as much, and I personally prefer raw. So probably in the end, I'm gonna pass on modern art and keep raw because yeah. raw is the one that I really love. And part of what I'm doing here is I'm trying to make decisions based on the people that I game with. So we have a weekly Saturday night game group that's been going on for three years now. And I have a pretty good sense of what those folks are going to like. So if Mm -hmm. there's a game in my collection that they don't like or doesn't get to the table, it has to be a pretty good game for me to hang on to it. I mean, I'm talking about Go and Terra Mystica here. Ones that I do not get played with my game group, but they're good enough games and I know there will be a time when I get them played that I hang on to them. Right. But that bar is really high for me. Right. So when done right, and I don't always do it right, but when done right, this approach means that you get to try a lot of new games and you mm-hmm. basically get to fund your new game purchases by selling on your right. old games. Often after having played them three or four times, so you don't get your full money out of it, but you get enough. And when you compare it to a movie ticket or something, you know, you're saving a lot of money. You're getting three or four plays out of a game and then some of your initial purchase cost out of it. Yeah. So I I am much more cynical, I guess you could say, about board games. I see them as consumables inherently. I do not mm-hmm. see them as collectibles. Now, one of the things that I'm running into, it's been a while. It's been about three years since I got into gaming and I'm discovering that I'm finding it harder and harder to fire games. So yeah. I'm, am- I'm amassing a solid chunk of games that I love and don't really get played a lot anymore. Yeah. Something like Sheriff of Nottingham, for example. I was just going to bring this one up yeah. and I suspect why. Uh, I thought of three other reasons why mm-hmm. I, uh, why I, I, um, I, I, I hoard games, why, mm-hmm. why I have such a huge collection of games. Um, but one of them is this very idea that when you've played a game 20 or 30 times with friends mm-hmm. and you're burnt out on it, yeah, mm-hmm. that's still kind of like this memory box. Yeah. And your friends come over and they say, man, we had a lot of fun playing Sheriff. And you're looking at the games and it's like, yeah, what do we play tonight? Sheriff or this or this? And it'll inevitably be something else. Right. Because you psych a lot of Sheriff. Right. But... It's sort of that thing where if it was gone, mm-hmm. if your friends found out that you sold it... Oh, they would tar and feather me. Right. But we never play it. I haven't played Castle Panic in three years, but mm-hmm. I played the heck out of that. That box is so worn. Yeah. I played it with, uh, with, with my sons when they were younger. We had such a good time with it. And call me childish, I know the game is kind of simplistic, mm-hmm. but I really like it, yeah. even just as a game. But I know I'm not going to play that game anytime right. soon, but I look at that and I think... 
I, I just I can't get rid of it. Yeah. It has, it has too many memories attached to it. Yeah. So that is kind of an advantage, I think, of, of, of keeping games. It becomes almost like an artifact of the memories that you've made with it. And, right. And you're right. If, if you followed my approach in a German fashion, perfectly efficient all the time, you would always sell off the games that you had gotten your plays out of. And mm-hmm. in a few cases, I've done that. But for the most part, I don't have the heart to do that. Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. My wife and I finished the first box. I've bought the second box. You're not so we're on the, the second box. I have no plans to get rid of yeah, the first box about at this game, time. You can't... It's just hard. For one thing, I know I can lend that out to people, and I'm still actively lending it out to people. Right. So it is still getting played, just not by me. And I'm happy to you know help my friends out that way. But for another thing, I just don't have the heart. I mean... My wife and I have some of our best gaming times with that box. I, I don't want to get rid of it. Right. So in one sense, I can't even follow my own logic to its conclusion. I can't really be perfectly heartless because I believe that gaming is experience. It's experiential. So I don't want to get rid of these boxes that are basically inert at this point. You know, we're not playing them, but man, they remind me of all these good times I've had with my friends. And that's hard to part with. <laughs> There are some other pluses, and I'm going to get to minuses of my approach um, <laughs> because there are there are certainly many. I mean, and it's an excessive approach, and I get that. But again, there are some pluses to it. One is that I feel like anytime anybody comes over to game, mm-hmm. well, first of all, they're more likely to come here than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It's like when I set up gaming with my friends, they're like, it's, it's just the assumption. Oh yeah, we're going to go over to Tim's place, right? Because I'm the one with the games. Mm-hmm. I'm the one with anything that we're in the mood for. Mm-hmm. I have the full catalog, and I'm ready for anything. Right. And I really like that from like a, a kind of a, there's, there's a, it's part hospitality, mm-hmm. part being thought of as the game guru. Right. That, and part like they walk into the room, and it's like, wow, man. And they're, they're always smiling like, you are just a yeah. machine. And then they and say, just wait until you see the closet. Yeah, yeah. And then they open up the closet. And, yeah, and blow so, their collective minds. So there is there is just something about that wow factor that I love. And I don't know, maybe part of it is pride and hubris. But yeah, probably. Uh, it, it, it sends this cool <laughs> message like that. Is When it comes to gaming, this is the party house, man. It is cool, and, yeah. And I I like that. Um, the other thing, and I think part of this is a function of having so many games. It's like, okay, Nexus Ops. I played it twice. Mm-hmm. Why have I only played it twice? Because I have 300 games in my collection. Right. But it's a good enough game that I'm like, man, I, I got to hang on to that. I, yeah. I, I need to come back to that. And that is kind of a problem on the one hand. And we'll talk about that opportunity cost in a minute. But I also like the fact that as a game, as somebody who likes to analyze games, I have so much to draw on. It's true. It's true. Because when I play a game and I think, you know, does Nexus Op do this better? Mm-hmm. I can pull Nexus Ops out and, 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 yeah. and find out because now, I have it on my shelf. One thing that's interesting, and I've never made this connection before, but I am the one who logs my plays right. and comments on my games. Right. So I wonder if that's almost like a substitute for just hanging on to the actual game. It is interesting. If I sell off a game, I know at least I've got my play records, I've got my comments of the game. And that's usually like two or three paragraphs just describing, unless I really hated the game, but it usually describes, you know, generally how I felt about it. Are you the kind of person that when you create a playlist, playlist, you go to it and you choose what you're in the mood for that day, or do you just hit shuffle? I just hit shuffle. 
See, that's interesting. <laughs> that's how I feel about my game collection. Uh-huh. Like, there are times when I get really an itch to play a particular game. Mm-hmm. But what I like about a collection this size is I can almost hit shuffle. Yeah. I can go to the closet, and I have no idea what I'm going to pull out. <laughs> I look at all these games like, oh, I need to play this one. Oh, I need to play this one. Oh, I need to play this one. And you just make some random decision, and you go with yeah. it. And it's so spontaneous and interesting. So let's talk about this, then. One of the reasons... So one of the downfalls of my approach is I've ended up selling games that I've never even brought out to my game group. Right now I have I know. Co- Cosmic Encounter up you on, have that on the chopping block. I can't believe it. I have it. not gotten it out. It's been on my shelf for three months. My group has not gravitated towards it. So you know what? In this case, I need the shelf space and the fact that they haven't picked it up. It may be great, but we have not do- doven, dived. We've not dived into that. Divin. Divin. There we go. So... <laughs> I guess what I'm saying here, you need to have a group with the capacity to absorb new plays. Yes, that's and true. to a certain extent, I don't have that group. I kind of yeah. just keep a smaller collection because people kind of want to play a game they already know. They are not really up for learning a new game most weeks or maybe one game every other week or something. Whereas you've got a bunch of dedicated gamers, well, myself included. Right. I have you and I have my son. Right. And... I've already been thinking he's he's a junior this year. He's mm-hmm. a senior in high school next year. And I'm, I'm thinking, boy, if he moves on to college or goes out <laughs> anywhere, I'm in trouble. I mean, I've lost one of my key. Yeah. Uh, you know, my son will just I'll, I'll be like, hey, man, I'll pull a game out of the closet. He's never even seen. Sure. We'll give it a try. Yeah. I'll sit down and read the rule book and we'll just we'll just go for it. And, and right. not not everybody's like that. Right. Uh, it drives a lot of people nuts. Right. And yeah, yeah, that's I've been fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you don't have a game group that supports that, right? Well, I can really see how you'd want to. It's interesting that you're calling games before you even gotten them to the table. Yeah. Well, in I've some ways, though, that'd be easier for you. I've right? played Cosmic Encounter, so I know what it's like, and I also know I've got plenty of other negotiation games in my closet at this point. So I'm gonna let my group learn those. And you know what? Cosmic Encounter is a classic. I can pick it up again mm-hmm. if we really get the itch. For a really mm-hmm. good negotiation game because I know it's really good. I've played it. Yeah. So in one sense, I'm taking it out of my collection because I know I can always put it back in. <laughs> so there's another reason, too, that I, I I keep a lot of these games. And maybe it's just because uh, for me, I have this weird thing. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like selling stuff at yard sales. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather just give it away to somebody who needs it or give mm-hmm. it to a thrift store. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about sort of earning your money back on these games, yeah, I always feel weird selling something for any more than half of what uh, I bought it for. Like, yeah. to, to me, it's just kind of a rule that if you, I mean, unless it was StarCraft, the board game, that, you know, <laughs> of course, I'd sell it for, you know, three or four times its, it's list price. But um, for the most part, the games that I have, and, and, okay, this gets compounded by the fact that I like collecting games, but mm-hmm. I'm not obsessive about keeping them in utterly collectible shape. Mm-hmm. My games get dinged around a little right. bit. I don't watch the temperature and humidity in this room. <laughs> and so the boxes kind of, you know, get a little bit dished, you know, here and there. And it doesn't matter to me. I don't care. I'm more I'm more about what's inside the box. Right. But I know that my games aren't like in super collectible shape for the mm-hmm. for the people who obsess about over that uh, obsess about that thing. And so I look at it and I think do I really want to sell, I don't know, Alien and Frontiers for 20 bucks? Now, in reality, I could probably get a lot more than that out of it. Yeah, you it could. Just, it seems like, and, and guys, I ne- I'll never understand this. 
there are there's a popular auction site which I will um, leave unnamed, whose motto should probably be, you know, why buy new when you can pay more for used? I, <laughs> I don't I don't understand it. Um, hey, I don't claim to understand it. I just profit from it. <laughs> And, you know, even on Geek Market, you see games going for like 75% of their selling yeah. price at, at stores. So in a way, that's probably not a good excuse for me to think, well, I'm not going to get that much out of the game anyway. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I also look at the time and effort I would spend on it relative to so, the money I would get. And it's just sort of like... Think about right? it this way, though. I mean, I've done the math. I know I'm a giant nerd. I've done the math. Cost per play. And when I realized yeah. that I've played a game... A $40 game six times, I'm paying, what, a little under 7 bucks a play for that? And then I have the opportunity to sell it on for maybe 20 bucks, get half out of it. That's a good That's a good investment for me because I'm paying less for those plays and I get 20 more bucks to spend on board games. And the hoarder in me, though, says, yeah, but if you get in the mood to play it again, then pretty much that play is free. So, <laughs> because you've already paid for the game, you know, it's, it's already delivered its value to you. It's true. So, yeah, I, yes, yes. There, there is probably some psychologist listening to this thing right now going, this guy's really sick. <laughs> Tim needs some help, and, and you know... And Andrew the, needs some the, emotions. Jeez Louise, how can he sell on a game he hasn't played? <laughs> so, yeah, downsides to your approach, though. I've talked about my downsides yeah, a I lot. Guess so. You haven't yeah. talked about your downsides much, so fess up, buddy. <laughs> I'll let you choose one. What are, some that one. You, what, what are some that you see? Okay. Uh, the Dilemma of Choice. Talk about that one. <sighs> yeah. Because here's the thing, I have this problem with 70 games, so I cannot imagine hosting a game night with 300 games on the shelves. I can't tell you how many times I have people who, who say, you know, yeah, let's play this game Ogre. I'm just looking at one that's on the shelf right now that's still in shrink that I haven't played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, uh, yeah, you've had that for like months now. Why haven't you played that? Well, I, I just... I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. It's a good game. Why haven't you played it? I, 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 I don't, I see, there's a, there's a sort of like almost embarrassment mm-hmm. uh, that goes with the fact that I, I have way more games than I could play in a, in a year, yeah. right? I mean, you could play 70 games in a year. Yeah. 70 different games. Yeah. And I only have, I think, four games in my collection that I haven't touched. Wow. I've played all of the others at least I once. Have dozens. And, and, and that's... that's one, it's a little bit sort of embarrassing, but it creates sort of this angst. I talked about the upside of going to my closet, opening it up and feeling like I never know what I'll walk, walk out of that closet with in my right. hand, ready to put through on the table and play. <laughs> the downside is but, when you stand there for 20 minutes, right. oh, these are all good choices. And you've seen that happen. Yep. And you've also, uh, I also open up that box. I open up that brand new box going, wow. By playing this game, I'm forfeiting mm-hmm. all these other game experiences that are available to me, and am I making the best choice? Mm-hmm. And see, and that's a really interesting question, because how many negotiation games do I have? How many hidden right. role games do I have and hidden movement games? How many Euro worker placement games do I have? Engine building, civ building games do I have? And have I ever sat down to really say, okay, what's best in class? Mm-hmm. And if, you know, if I have nations and uh, through the ages... And clash of cultures, which is better? Like, which is a better investment of my time? Would right. I have more fun if I just kept one of those in my collection and just really yeah. committed more to it? Yeah. 
if you kind of said, you know, Nations is my favorite game, I'm just going to play it three times as often and sell off the other two. Right. But you might be missing the other. The right. other two might be even better right. than Nations. And what if so I you better out? make the investment? And what if and, I burn out on yeah, Nations? Yeah. And, and, and I've discovered <laughs> that through the ages, it's really a richer and deeper game experience and that I really want that. Or what if some friend happens to waltz into my circle that says, I really love Through the Ages and explains to me all the hidden depths that I've missed <laughs> and, and, and the fun that I've missed and et cetera, oh, et cetera. What if, if only you could yeah. buy the game when that situation occurred? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. To show how bad hoarding is, yes, and I'll agree. There is some hoarding element to this. The more the more we talk, the more I see it. I think by the end of this episode, I'm going to be ready to call some counselor or something. <laughs> Holy cow! But but seriously, one of the things that gets me on that is, what if it goes out of print? Mm-hmm. Like Vassal's Law. Yes, but I hate waiting. Well, live with it. Catacombs. <laughs> Catacombs. Yeah, and you waited. Nearly freaking you waited three years. And now you have it, and it's sitting in shrink, and you haven't played it yet. So, man, good thing that you rushed out and yeah. got it, because we haven't yeah. played it yet. I, mean, I, I, can't, I, mean, I can't argue with you there. I, I, I'm, I hear what you're saying. Look, in the interest of time, we need, we need to wind this down. I think we could return to this discussion. I, I just want to say, once again, I said this at the front end. I'm going to say it at the back end. I especially... But us collectively, we're not shaming anyone for the way you buy games. Look, yeah. collecting games is fine. Keeping them in shrink in your closet is cool. It's mm-hmm. fun and enjoyable to scout the sales and pick up a good deal and find a game that might be really good. It's fine. We're not shaming anyone for having a ton of games or for having few games or for trying to get all their games played or for having a ton of games that they haven't played. All we're saying is I think all gamers think about this because right. we all like the kind of shiny grab a new game aspect of the hobby. And so I think all gamers think about this like, gee, I've really got a ton of games that I haven't played or don't play as much as I would like to. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, you know, something worth discussing a little bit. It is. And as a follow-up topic to this, what I hope to be able to be talking about in about six months is how I've made some decisions to call my collection down. Six months, man. I'm really like one month. Let's do this thing. You've been are talking you shaming about, me? You've been talking about culling since like are you, New Year. Are you shelf shaming me? Shelf. I don't know <laughs> what, what would be a good term for that. So yeah, but uh, I, I've I've been thinking about how to go about culling the games, and I think one of the ways to do it is to kind of create categories mm-hmm. and try to figure out best in class within yep. those categories. Yeah, um, which I just kind of do on the fly because I have a smaller yeah. collection. Yeah. So yeah. Well, good stuff. And we are going to, in the interest of time, move on to our review segment today. What, what game are we reviewing? You, you you told me that you had a mystery. Oh, I it thought was we a, were, it was a mystery. I thought we were just going to pull one and shrink off your shelves it and wing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, we got to try that. Review a game as we unbox it. That would be great. And try to convince... Be try, we should do that like on April Fool's or something. <laughs> and try to convince the uh, <gasps> our audience spill, that we're actually, we actually know what we're talking about. So now, the game that we are talking about today, we actually have played, yes. and this is the ever excellent Mysterium, Ooh. a game by Alexander Nevsky and Oleg Sidorenko. Polish? So I believe so. Yes, okay. Polish. Yeah. So this is the scene in Mysterium. A prominent member of the community has died in his mansion on the hilltop. It is a dark and stormy night. And you, the team of the world's top paranormal investigators, 
have been called to the scene of the crime to communicate with the deceased and figure out once and for all how he was murdered, where he was murdered, and most importantly, who murdered him. This is Mysterium. So in this game, you are going to be trying to interpret clues that are given to you by a ghost. And the ghost has a screen in front of them. And behind their screen, they have laid out a specific combination of weapon, location, and person for each player in the game. And these options are selected from a larger pool of options, which are laid out in front of all the players. So if there are five players, the players will see nine cards in front of them for person, location, and weapon. And then the ghost behind their screen will have selected five of those nine cards, each of which apply specifically to one player in the game. So each player has their own combination of who, where, what, that they are mm -hmm. trying to guess and progress forward. So this is really clue done interesting. It's, yep. it's a very appealing it's a very appealing mechanic because it's immediately intuitive. You say, we're trying to figure out who did it. We're trying to figure out where they did it and what they did it with. People say, oh, yeah, like Clue. So it's very accessible. I mean, people can get up and rolling in this instantly. So I just have a fun idea. Okay. I'm introducing something completely unexpected okay. that we did not rehearse. Completely unexpected. Not that we rehearsed much of this anyway. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but but let, me, let me take the role of a person who's never played Mysterium. Okay. Because I'm sitting here thinking, as, as, you're, as you're describing the game, what would I be thinking about if I'd, if I'd never played Mysterio? Right. So the first thing I ask is, okay, so how is this thing different from Clue? I mean, it's just, it's just guessing the, the murder weapon, the place, the, the person, right? I mean, what, what, really, what really gives this game something different from okay. a Clue experience? Well, you remembered that we're communicating with a ghost here. Mm -hmm. Ghosts can't use English. I don't even think they speak English. Uh -huh. They speak ghostese, which is communicated through a very complicated alphabet of surreal paintings. And through these surreal painting cards that you will receive, you must interpret what the ghost is trying to tell you about the cards on the table in front of you. So if you get a card with, I don't know, a bunch of red balls on it, maybe you are trying to guess the governess who has a red ball of yarn on her card. So you're trying to find a common element, some sort of common element between the clue card that the ghost hands you and the suspect cards which are out on the table in front of you. Ah, but this sounds like another game that I've played, Dixit. Okay, so this is so not how, quite how is like this, Dixit. How is this really any different than Dixit? This is not quite like Dixit uh -huh. because it turns the competitive aspect on its head. The competitive aspect has always been a little weird in Dixit. It's more of a, I don't know, it's just more of a low-key party game. But in Mysterium, instead of trying to compete against each other, you're actually all trying to work together because none of you plays the murderer. You're all investigators trying to figure out what's happening. So think of it as you're all following five versions of the story and you're going to have to, in the end, determine which story is the true one, but you're all five trying to determine your own thread of the story and figure this out and communicate with the ghost and it's almost like a, so we have the term one versus many in gaming. Yes. It's almost like a one plus many game because the ghost is kind of pulling all the strings in the background and communicating through these weird hint cards and trying so very hard to steer each person around the table to their own particular person, place, and weapon. 
tell tell us about the conclusion. How does it like? How does the game wrap up? What's that? Because it sounds like this is all leading toward this dramatic reveal, yes. right? So you will have seven rounds to guess your correct person. Once you've guessed the person, you'll move on to place. Once you've guessed the place, you'll move on to the weapon. So you'll have seven rounds to interpret hints from the ghost and collect one of each of those cards. Once you've made it there, and you're all trying to make it there with your own set of three cards, then you will hand your cards to the ghost, and the ghost will determine behind their screen which one of the sets is what really happened. Mm -hmm. And then, then you will lay out each set of three cards in front of the screen for everyone to see, and the ghost will, from their hand, select three final clues. One of them corresponds to the place, one of them corresponds to the person, one of them corresponds to the weapon. Mm-hmm. But the ghost is not allowed to tell you which is which. And depending on how well you've guessed in the beginning, there's kind of a clairvoyance track that we haven't explained, but you will get to see either one, two, or three of these final hint cards. And then with that information, and that information only, you won't be able to talk to your uh, other players. With only that information, you have to look at all of the options and choose which set of cards the ghost is trying to steer you towards with this final hint. And right. if a majority of the players around the table guess the correct set of cards, then you win Mysterium. So, so, what's magic about the game? Oh, man. Okay, so there's two ways you could take this here. Mm-hmm. There's kind of the player side and the ghost side. Now, have you played the ghost side? I have not. Okay, we've got to get you on because the Because we side. have one person in our group... Who really likes it. Who really likes my being wife. the ghost. My wife loves being the ghost. So yeah. She's I, often the ghost. I would. She would be getting on my nerves about that, but she's also my daughter. She's really so. good at it, too. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so how about I, I talk about a couple of magic moments on the ghost side, and then sure. you've got a couple on the player side, because I know you've played that side. Yeah. So from the ghost, for one thing, you can't talk. So this is so difficult. Oh, my goodness. And... Your entire game is going to be managing this hand of surreal hint cards. And often as the ghost, you're going to find that, man, just none of these hints are quite what you want. And you have to just make a leap of logic and just hope that the player that you're giving this hint card to is going to understand that leap of logic. And you have to try to figure out there's a million different ways you could interpret the card. You could interpret by color. You could interpret it by some small object that's in there you could interpret it by the overall composition and kind Mm -hmm. of vibe is it spooky is it creepy so you don't know how each player is really going to interpret the cards and you're just trying to give the best hints you can within this hand but the hand is never enough cards to really do quite what you want so man it's just so tense it's just so so this is a magic yeah this is a magic it's just so tense as the ghost you're just always in agony it's like constant agony which i guess you have to be a certain type of person to for that to appeal to you right but for me oh i love it it's like 30 minutes of trying to communicate with people through this really weird framework that's just really intriguing and what's really weird this game has a feel this is one of my magics mm-hmm. and i think it's it, it, i think we overlapped on this i yeah. think it hit your list i call it a, a weird a weird version of a one versus many that's not really one versus yeah. many co-op yeah or, or game because it feels at times it feels like 
it's everybody against the ghost. Right. Because the ghost is, is limited. So unhelpful. <laughs> yeah, he's so unhelpful. But he's trying to be helpful. But he, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so exactly. It, it creates this really interesting tension in the game, and I've never experienced this kind of tension in a co-op game ever. Yeah. Um, you know, imagine that guy who is playing in, in Dixit is mm-hmm. actually like a, a, a teammate. <laughs> right. And you're actually trying to, you know, like, he's actually trying to help you toward the card. Right. But he's giving some weird, obscure clue that doesn't quite get you there. I don't know. It's And the fact that the ghost player cannot speak at all. Yeah. And Alicia does a really good job with this, by the way. Even, like, <laughs> I'm sure there are times where she's looking at her hand going, there is nothing here. Right. Uh, this this just isn't, I'm going to have to give two players junk cards, and it's going to mislead them. Right. Um, you know, but she doesn't reveal it, which is kind of right. cool in her face right. and her actions. So, yeah, that's that's one of my magics is that this... this this is a very unique take yeah. on a one semi versus semi with one plus many. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try yeah. to get some adoption about around that phrase. I like that phrase. One, one plus, plus many. many. It's kind of like a game manager, ghost manager, if you want to be thematic. Yeah, I would say that my chief thing about this game, if you're thinking about buying this game, here's the best thing about it. It is so accessible. You can get right. up and running in this game very quickly especially if even a few of the players on the playing side have played before they can help along anyone who has not played before if you have an experienced ghost if you have someone to teach the game this is a very easy to get into game there are a couple aspects of it that i find clunky and we'll get into that in the tragic side of the review but the fact remains that this is very easy to set up you just tell someone oh it's clue and you get these weird cards and you're trying to figure out who did it right. based on these cards? I mean, okay, yeah, sure, let's do that. You know, I'm not going to have to worry about... Even in Dixit, you have to try to interpret the cards and everyone has to come up with a creative hint. No, that's mm-hmm. all on the ghost in this game. If you're a player, it's very easy to get up and running in this game, and I love the accessibility of it. I just realized that... I think that ties into my next magic. Okay. Which is the game is so incredibly thematic. The ghost sits, yes. sits behind yes, that it is. really tall shield that's, yeah. you know, with a picture of the mansion on it. With a picture of the mansion on it. And then the stuff is laid out in front of you in the sort of this progression that you're going mm-hmm. toward. And, you know, going toward that mansion feels like you're going more toward closer and closer to the ghost. Yeah. And it's just really incredibly thematic. Now, What's unusual, it's not unusual for a game to really capture theme incredibly mm-hmm. well. Well, I would say it's more unusual than people think. Yeah. <laughs> but that wasn't so much the feat mm-hmm. as it was an accessible game yes. that is incredibly yeah. thematic. Absolutely. I mean, name more than five of those. I mean, let's compare this to another game that we've reviewed and recommended, Deception Murder in Hong Kong. Right. Also a murder mystery. Although that one has a traitor. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the theme. I mean, this one feels way more thematic than oh, Deception. Yeah. Way oh, yeah. more thematic. And it's not quite as accessible, but boy, do you just get that spooky kind of old manor vibe from the whole thing. And the players are just kind of huddled together trying to figure out the solution. And yeah, it's just really, really good game to bring out with pretty much anyone. Yep. Do you have any more magics for this? I have a few tragics. Yeah, unless you've got some more magics. No, I'm at the end of my magics. I mean, they're strong magics. Oh, they are very strong magics. But let's be clear, before we get into the tragics here, we categorically recommend this game. 
This oh, is yeah. a fine Absolutely. game. This is an excellent game. Yes. You should definitely check out this game. Yep. But it's not perfect. Yeah. And a couple of things here aren't even really the fault of the game. So the first thing I've got, this rises and falls on your ghost. And right. I've run into a couple awkward situations where I've had someone that maybe I don't know as well want to be the ghost, and I don't yep. know anything about... You know, it takes a little bit of, of skill One of the worst things that can happen when you're explaining this game, I think the worst thing that can happen is for somebody in the crowd, one of the new players, to go, oh, that sounds, sounds fun. I want to be the ghost. Right. And you're going, eh, eh, Right. Okay. And so when yeah. I introduce this game, I either invite someone to be the ghost before I've explained it, someone who I know has already played like my wife, or I will pitch the game saying, so I play the ghost and just kind of, lock myself into uh-huh. the role from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Because here's the thing. If you have a bad GM behind the screen, it can mess up the balance of the game. And it, there really is a lot in choosing those cards and getting them to people. And it's tricky. And you don't want to let just anyone do it. And I'm not saying this to be snobby. I'm saying this to make sure that everyone around the table has a good time. And it can feel kind of lousy when someone really wants to be the ghost and you have to say... Oh, I think you'd make a hash of it. Well, you don't say that, but that's what you're thinking, and that makes mm. you feel bad because you're thinking that about your friend. And I think it's unavoidable. I think you need a strong GM in this game. Yeah. It's just a shame that that happens, that that social scenario has come up. It's just a bummer. But, you know, considering games that need a strong... Like, uh, one of the sort of semi-unforgivable sins, I think, in game design is when a board game needs a GM mm-hmm. and the GM has to regulate their play to make the game either easier or harder for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Descent mm-hmm. uh, is kind of like this, I, I, I feel like. If the yeah. Overlord really plays their heart out, yeah. uh, just, you know, it's too easy to trounce the, the, the heroes. Oh, right. I know Descent fans are really might really get on to me for that <laughs> one. But anyway, but what I like... Boy, I just went back to kind of the magic. What I like yeah. about <laughs> what I it's like, okay. it's what, I like what I like about the ghost, though, is that um, the, the ghost doesn't have to to hold back. Right. I mean, the ghost is trying flat out. Yeah. This game is still hard. a hard game. Yeah, it's hard. And and if I'm dipping back into magic points too, I'll say this: I, I know that some have said the game can be played with Dixit cards. I find that hard to believe. We've done it. That it would be as good. Because I feel like the cards in this game are purposely, have more intentionally looser connections. They might. They might actually, now that you mention it. I don't know if it's necessarily, I don't know if you've noticed a huge difference, but I agree that I think they designed these cards specially for this game. And that was hard to do. And that's brilliant design. But going back to the minus, Mm -hmm. not everybody's ready for a game that requires an experienced yeah, kind of GM or yeah. to, to to run and at least to run successfully. Yeah, and I feel like this game does need that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now I now I have a point that I think is the game's fault, and this is where the game's not perfect for me. I'm gonna take a guess. End game. Oh, clairvoyance, man! The whole no, clairvoyance. clairvoyance well, well, the clairvoyance is built up in the end game. So but, yeah, yeah, okay, they're, they're one in my mind. So clairvoyance, we didn't explain it before. Clairvoyance is this system where you can guess, you can vote on someone else's guess, whether you think it's correct or incorrect. And if you guess correctly, 
on whether they were correct or incorrect, then you move up this clairvoyance track and the clairvoyance track determines how many cards of that final hint you get to see. Mm -hmm. And so you'll either see one, two or three cards of that final hint, depending on how well you did at guessing other people's progress in the first half of the game. Right. Well, here's the thing. Uh, it's just a bummer. It's just a bummer. It, for one thing, it's an added thing to worry about when you're in the time limit trying to guess the cards. Yeah. And for another thing, the second half of the game just feels disjointed. The, the worst thing that can happen in this game is for everybody to just scrape through, for everybody to guess their three cards, and we say, oh, we did it, we did it, and then we hand it to the ghost, and the ghost hands out their final hint, and we look at it, and we all vote, and we got it wrong. Oh, we lost the game. Despite all of us having gotten our correct combination, all of us having interpreted all those clues correctly for the first seven rounds of the game, and now at the very end, because we guessed wrong among five options when maybe some of us could only see one or two of the cards of the hint right. for that combination, it just feels disjointed, and it feels incredibly deflating to lose after you've done so well with the first half, it just feels like a, se so, like a separate part of the game. I'm going to actually disagree with you on that. On, okay. on that. I, I like the clairvoyance. I think without it, I think it adds, like, another thing that you need to be you need You need to go beyond just worrying about your how your clue relates to the card. Yeah. Um, I feel like it might be too simplistic without that. You need to look at other players' cards. It gets you sort of engaged in what the other player has played. Yeah. And I think without that, you would be less engaged yeah. with, with what I, they've guessed. I wouldn't say that the game would be better by just lopping that off. I obviously think the game needs an end, and I think the clairvoyance definitely services the end. So I'm not saying just lop off all those mechanics. It just feels a little half-baked to me. I would have liked to see a couple more turns in the oven. My tragic, and this is my main tragic with mm -hmm. the game, it's, it's not that it doesn't work mechanically. It's a thematic problem. And okay. as much as I've said about the theme... Yeah, and you've said a lot. It's, it's, <laughs> it is incredibly well-themed. And the mechanics tie perfectly to the theme, except for the ending. Yeah. When everybody puts the cards that they were hinted toward in a um, little pocket and hands it to the ghost, and then the ghost chooses one of those to be the actual murder scenario. So right. w w wait a minute. I thought the ghost knew who the murderer was to begin with. So what were all those other scenarios then? Were those right. just kind of like the ghost having like just some kind of confusion about something? Or And I, 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 I niggle at this because this to me is like the thematic chink in the armor of this game. Yeah. and it Which just, is so strong. It's sort of like you, you, it's sort of like you drew a Rene Magritte painting and then just threw a splotch of paint on the front of it and you shouldn't <laughs> it's sort of like you just did this one silly thing to, to mess up perfection yeah there had to be some way mm -hmm. of like I, you had a good idea before the interview we were kind of talking about i mean before the podcast we were talking about this where you said what if you played it to where like one of you is the murderer yeah and doesn't quite realize it or something yeah. and it, there had to be some way to thematically tie that right. Right. Uh, in a better way, because it, it, the way the way the the way what you're doing connects to the final result. Right. Isn't connected thematically yeah. in the least. And it's a bummer. It's a bummer. Yeah. yeah. 
So I guess on the basis of that, we're taking back our recommendation, right? Absolutely Wrong. not. No, this is oh, still this game is beautiful. A very good game. Beautiful. This is still a very good game. Despite one more tragic that I would throw in there. Oh, you have another one, sorry. The uh, I know the paranormal aspect bugs some people. And there are a couple scenarios where I haven't brought this game out. If it doesn't bug you, that's great. Go and get and enjoy this game. And I have mm-hmm. and love this game, even though Personally, you know, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in the occult or any of, of that stuff. And this game is themed around that. And I I, I don't want to say that's a shame, but just know that you will encounter circumstances where there will be people who won't want to look past that. And like we talked about in our last discussion, that's totally fine. Yeah. I don't think you need to pillory the game because of that, because some people disagree with it. But just know it's an accessible filler game that you're going to want to bring out in a lot of situations. So just use a little bit of host's discretion. Mm-hmm. And maybe you don't bring this one out in every situation. That's weird. You call this a filler game? No. Yeah, I, I guess filler's the wrong term. Accessible game. I don't I don't play It doesn't overstay its welcome, for no, sure. No, it doesn't. It's, it's, not, it's probably not like under an hour. It's, it's yeah, about an, an hour. hour. Yeah. 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 An hour. A good hour. A good hour, yeah. yeah. Any, uh, any of our listeners want to take a crack at, at, at uh, what movie that came from? Can't hear you. Can't hear you. You're going to have to contact us. They're all groaning. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. Mysterium. Very good game. Get on board. Definitely recommends it. We definitely Mm. think you should check it out. So, that covers our review. Yep. And we purposely switched the order of our podcast yeah, I as feel we weird. went through it. I feel so weird. We, it feels we did weird things. to not do recent plays right now. I did miss one little bit. Okay. In recent plays. Okay, so we are going to have recent plays at the end. We are kind of. Orders no, 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 no. the universe. But it's slightly different. It's slightly different. Okay. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're going to talk I'm talking about. about playing with a game. <laughs> okay, go on, and go on. Let's go on and tell them about the new, the new thing. I think I may have found, like, a cure for obsessing over buying games. You can obsess over buying Gasland stuff. Obsess over over building yeah. Gasland stuff. It's a good cure. Oh, my goodness. I totally understand why people get into this now. Yeah. I've been watching these really cool videos about how to how to take Hot Wheels cars apart. Yeah. You buy this brand at the auto parts store that can just really strip the paint. Yeah. You have to be, like, over... 21, I think, to buy this yeah. spray, but it like completely strips the paint off and how you can use a rotary tool, which I bought, to kind of like make the car look dented and then how to do rust washes. And, and, and so I've, I've, I'm buying all of these paints. Yes, I guess I am buying. I'm going to the library, our public library that has a 3D printer available to use for free and printing off stuff and ordering stuff from other people who print 3D stuff and ordering people who've crafted from people who've crafted stuff for this game from Etsy. And I haven't played a single game of it. I was going to say, how's the gameplay? <laughs> the gameplay looks amazing, and I've yeah. watched many detailed videos on how to play it. I, I thought of this a really bizarre analogy. I don't know, I almost feel embarrassed for, for saying this. It's sort of like a guy who's preparing for that for his first date. I remember my first date with my wife. Yeah. I like, you know, detailed my car perfectly. <laughs> I made like the perfect mixtape. I had like everything, just like the whole evening just planned to a T. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want to put this game on the table 
And to invite somebody to play this. <laughs> you don't want it until it's perfect. Without getting the full thematic effect of what it is. Yeah. And I do think, ooh, this is one of the reasons I'm so obsessed with Gaslands is because of the gameplay. Yeah. When I hear, when I hear major Star Wars fans saying, this uses the same kind of template movement that I think it is X-Wing uses. Yeah. Yeah. But actually does it better. When I see a game that uses dice as its kind of decider for movement and everything, but creates an amazingly intuitive yet effective yet costly mitigation tool right. for modifying your dice to get them where you need, to where you need, and that whole thing feels thematic, like you're taking chances, making these split second decisions as you're driving and swerving your car. And <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm gonna try to take this spin and swerve, but that pushes me further on hazard tokens. And the next thing I do, the next movement I make is critical because if I go over in hazard tokens, I could be screwed. Oh, I am, I am so excited about this game. And so I, that's what I have been playing I'm, with. But see, you crafted a bunch I'm of games. I'm pumped to try it with you. Haven't you ever gotten that thrill out of crafting a game? Yeah, I have. I do. I do print and play games, so it's a different thrill. What's but, What's the most creative thrill? Come on, I, I need to feel better. I need to know that you've you, you know you can connect on this here a little bit. That I'm not the only well, freak out there. I mean, to borrow your analogy, I took my wife to McDonald's. So. Oh really. Although McDonald's is McDonald's is much fancier in Russia, yeah, you have to understand. Moscow, it's man. much nicer. It took you know. McDonald's in Moscow, and it, by the way, he's right. It is actually <laughs> a classier experience. Yeah. Believe I don't think that. that was our first date, but oh. we did go to McDonald's several times. So, but no, yeah, I I enjoy crafting. I I get into the play of the game more. I like to craft a game really nice. If it's a solo game that I really enjoy, yeah, you know, first I'll try it with just sleeved pieces of paper, and then. If I really like it, you know, getting out the glue and the cardstock and the folder and, you know, just making really nice cards for it or something like that. I, I get that thrill, right. but I've never gotten into, you know, painting miniatures or anything like that. So not specifically uh, the same thrill, but yeah, we've all got a little crafter in us. I just have a this horrible fear that I'm going to, I've got everything now to paint the cars and I, I don't think I'll get to it before the next podcast, but I think within two podcasts I'll have painted my first car. And I just have this horrible fear that I'm, I'm going to give it a shot and the thing is just going to look awful. <laughs> it's just going to look awful. Well, if I it does, know. you know one thing for sure. I'll tell you honestly how it looks. <laughs> yeah. So whether it's good or bad, I'll tell you for sure. And I guess in the end, if I really need to, I can just paint the car black, paint the weapon black, mount it on top and say, here you go. You know, there just, you go. You know, Gaslands doesn't need everything that I've just described to right. make it. Um, but and what's really cool, guys, if you've thought about getting this game, get out on, on Thingiverse and look at some of the 3D models that people oh, yeah. are putting out there for the cars, for the terrain. For, for all of that stuff, the templates, everything. It is it is pretty amazing. But yeah. So I just thought I'd 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 share that with everybody. If you if you need a miniatures game to obsess over, but you don't want to spend thousands yeah, with cheap miniatures. Imagine that. Check out Gaslands. There you go. So, yep. Well, sweet. I think this wraps up our episode, surprises and all, out of order and all. An hour-ish of your life, you'll never get back. Mm, you might get back if we invent time travel in the next, you know, Ooh, 20 years or something. Let's get on that but, right away. you know, so hope you enjoyed our recent plays, our discussion about game collection management, and, of course, our Mysterium review. This has been 
get on board. We release new episodes on Mondays. We release written reviews on Wednesdays. You can find us on the web at www.getonboard.games. You can find our podcast anywhere you get good podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all the good stuff. As always, thanks for listening and play more games. Bye. So hope you enjoy.